Hi, this is Ron Carucci. I'm with Chris Smits on Culture Matters. And too often I find that leaders spend uh, inordinate amounts of time trying to sell people on their ideas and fail to take the time to read the context into which those ideas are going. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Chris Smith, and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode number 91, closing to 100 an episode, but this is number 91. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, this is a perfect moment to do so. Go to iTunes or go to your uh, Stitcher account and um, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Culture matters. This week's guest is Ron Carucci. He is the co-founder and managing partner at Nevolent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. In addition to being a regular contributor to the HBR, the Harvard Business Review, and Forbes, he has been featured in uh, in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, and Business Week, Smart Business, and Thought Leaders. That is a lot of stuff. He is the best-selling author of eight books, including the Amazon number one bestseller, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Exceptional Executives. And we will talk about that book um, quite extensively in this podcast. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Good morning, Ron. How are you? Great, Chris. Great to be with you. All right. Thanks. Likewise here. Happy that you're here on the show. Uh, I actually, I'm saying good morning, but I'm not really sure whether it is good morning. Uh, this time of recording, that at least is my time zone, it is 10 minutes to 6 in the uh, afternoon or early evening. So why don't you tell us a little bit, Ron, about yourself, where do you come from, uh, where you are now, physically that is, and uh, what would you consider being your cultural frame of reference so I am uh, – as we speak, it is good morning here in Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. uh, although I, I do hail from New York. I'm a displaced East Coaster here in the U.S. Uh, and for those of us, those of you listening in the U.S., you understand how culturally different that really is. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, I spend my days with a wonderful group of colleagues at the firm Navalent where we traipse through organizations of all kinds, helping them on very disruptive and wild transformational journeys. Okay. Uh, and uh, my cultural frame of reference is, in fact, organizations and communities, large groups of people coming together in some common endeavor, uh, in some common aspiration, trying to accomplish something. Okay. That's uh, a lot of how I see the world. Okay. It's, a, it's a good thing. Uh, thanks for the introduction here. So you're in Seattle, Washington, um, which is – is it raining right now? Because it's raining there a lot? Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> standard, standard uh, – 
practice. Uh, before you we say have- anything else, Ron, can I ask you to uh, uh, your your shirt? Your uh, what what is is against your mic, so it's a bit of a scratching sound that we hear as well. That's a lot better. I can actually see what you what you're doing because we're recording this as well for YouTube. And if you want to get a glimpse on uh, on what Ron is wearing right now, which is which was causing the scratching <laughs> sound, you can go to culturematters.com/slash/youtube and you can find the uh, the uh, video recording there as well. So. Um, so it's raining right there, isn't that? Are you miss? Aren't you missing that? Like the good weather or the cold winters in New York, and then getting the rain instead? I do miss Four Seasons a lot. Uh, yeah, it's uh, we have two seasons a year in Seattle: beautiful summers and crap. And crap. Uh, yeah. By ten months, by ten months of the year. Uh, but I do miss four full seasons from the Northeast for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. You, you work for a company. Your, your company is called Navalent, N-A-V-E-L-A-N-T, correct? N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T, yeah. N-A-V-A, okay, Navalant. What, where does it name come from? That's, a, that's the first question I actually I, I thought of when I, when I saw your name passing by and we set up this, uh, this conversation. So it's, a, it's an interesting word. It comes from the, the root of two different words, navigate and valence. Okay. Uh, valence is the chemical property with which people you – know, where two, two chemical bonds, two chemical properties have to bond together uh-huh. to form some reaction. Uh, usually a provocative or transformative one. And so literally the word means navigating the bonds of transformation. Okay. All right. I, I, you still have to work on the shirt because it's, uh, it's, it's the color is just up too high. That's it. I'm sorry about that. Otherwise, Okay. Well, then I, I'll move the mic up. That's, we'll up. that's good. Up. Yeah, that'll yeah. work. Okay. Nevelyn. So, okay, now we know where the name comes from. Um, and then you said your cultural frame of reference is, is, is uh, transformation. What is a transformation and, and what kind of transformations do you do? And is there like a common denominator in terms of this is what companies want to transform from one to the other? Uh, yeah. So um, many organizations that call us are stuck in some way. They're either they've hit a ditch or they've hit some competitive difficulty or they're unable to act or respond mm-hmm. um, or some new leader has arrived into the organization and has – either some perceived or real mandate to create some kind of a change uh, in the organization's performance. And typically they pull, you know, the common levers of the org chart or they bring in armies of consultants to redo a strategy. They, they, they bring in a classic set of levers that often don't work mm-hmm. uh, to bring change about. And so when they get frustrated and stuck, they call and say, hey, hey, I'm trying all these things and nothing is happening. And so – uh, because we see organizations and uh, systems and holistically, it's typically a little bit easier for us to find out what lever they're not pulling mm-hmm. or what approach they're not taking where their challenge probably resides uh, and help them step back, um, choose more holistic solutions and actually get change to happen. So can you give us an example of what a uh, a, a, a lever is that, that organizations are pulling and what, what, what is the holistic approach? How does that differ? What's an example yeah. of that or a story? So um, uh, a large food manufacturer mm-hmm. called us um, and felt like um, – so their opening lens was culture. <laughs> uh, and, they, and they said, let's change the values. We want to put new values in. And, and unfortunately, most of the values they wanted to install were corrective, right? So the organization was not responsive. It was slow. Um, it was not a particularly highly accountable organization. Uh, people had been allowed to – be complacent in performance and not live up to their commitments. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to reframe a whole new set of values that 
put in um, a new set of beliefs that actually corrected the behavior. Well, of course, you have many problems there, one of which is no value set defined is going to ever change behavior in and of itself. And if all the values are meant to correct bad behavior, you can you can be sure the one thing that will, they, they won't do is, is change behavior. Yes. Secondly, the problem wasn't necessarily behavioral. You had a structure in place that was highly bloated. You had business units that were fragmented, not making money because they didn't belong in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. You had a very unclear strategy. You had work and roles defined in very um, inelegant and fragmented ways. Mm-hmm. You had – uh, broken processes that could not move information across this very large global enterprise, uh, and you had very poor talent practices. So there were numbers of systemic problems um, that the leaders wanted to um, – uh, we're hoping for a silver bullet, that if we just paint on new values and announce them and build a very expensive campaign of beautiful posters and mugs and screensavers and you know lots of pretty videos that announce what these values mean, that somehow we'd have a whole bunch of new behavior. And of course, that's not how it works. No. So uh, our work was to help gut from the inside out uh, a very different look at how the organization needed to be framed, a very different look at competitively how the organization needed to position itself, um, get clear on who, what customers it was serving, what consumers it was serving, what customers and consumers it was not going to serve, mm-hmm. and with what capabilities, mm-hmm. and then architect an organization um, holistically, so what we call software and hardware, so yeah. culture processes, people, systems, governance, decision rights yeah. um, in an integrated way to match that direction. So that's, that's to some extent, that is the, uh, the, the 7S model of McKinsey, the slow-moving variables and the fast-moving variables. Variables. Does that make any sense? It's a, yeah, so our systems model is a little bit more dynamic than that. There's, there's a static model, but, but you get the idea. It is a much more systemic approach to you know, inputs, throughputs, and outputs, a, a more open systems model. Yeah. So this and you did this. This example comes from an uh, with an organization within the United States, correct? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. To, to what extent does 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 it become more difficult? I guess. I mean, it's a bit of an assumption. To what extent does it become more difficult to do this if uh, if that organization operates internationally? Well, this one does. This is a global. It's a global food company. So. Um, multinationals, I mean, you, the difference becomes geography plays a different role, right? So uh-huh. if in the role of the portfolio of the geography as a unit of analysis is important, um, that's one opportunity. If the geography relative to other groupings of work uh, needs to be de-emphasized, mm-hmm. um, then that's a different issue, right? So how it is we determine what role geography plays uh, is the, the first step in determining how do we treat the multinational aspect of the organization? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where is its consumer base regionally oriented? Is its consumer base not? Um, but the second part of that then becomes cross-cultural issues, right? So yes. when you think about um, Asia versus Europe versus you know Latin America versus North America, mm-hmm. um, you have to take into account are there cultural nuances or cult- big C yes. cultural differences right. that um, will will affect positively or negatively the changes you're putting in place and account for those. And is there a common denominator? Or, yeah, again, a common denominator. And I mean, um, when it comes to leadership, that you're stumbling into things that that are, are predictable beforehand. Like if you work with Indians and Americans, friction will be there. If you work with Germans and Brazilians, I'm making it up as I go along, the friction will be there. Is that something you can pinpoint? You know, I think there are always patterns. Yes. Well, we, that's what I mean. I mean. We, uh, uh, there are, we have a you know a large pattern in the library we're, we're always screening for. I don't know that you can you 
there can be heuristics. I don't know that you can always have rules of thumb. I think you have to look at the context of that organization to know which patterns might or might not apply. But the data, the diagnosis has to show you that pattern. You can't just walk in assuming that it will be there. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there are certain cross-cultural frictions mm-hmm. that you can predict. Sometimes there are not. Right. Um, I think it depends on how that organization has required participation from multinational participants, right? right. You have plenty of organizations yeah, that are global sure. that have done a great job yeah. of making the borders neutral. Yeah. And you have some organizations by virtue of how they set themselves up that have inserted tensions among any cross-border population because they've made they've, – they've, they've inserted frictions mm-hmm. that appear to be – cultural but that really aren't Mm. example yeah so if you have your call center and your service center uh situated in asia yes and you have your supply chain situated in uh south america Mm -hmm. um the division may not be cultural that there's problems it may be that your core process of how you how products get ordered and shipped to around the world is broken and technologies don't talk to each other and there are language barriers and there are there are, there are institutional problems, yes. right? But you can say, well, it's the, the Brazilians and the Koreans don't get along. Yeah. Um, when that's not the problem at all. Or at least it's, it's, it could be part of the problem, but it's not the complete problem. And you have to look well, at, the, at the systems as well. That's what you're saying. Yeah, well, I think my guess is the first place I would look would be, you know, the, the ethnicity, right? Uh-huh. I, that, I, I mean, I certainly wonder about that. But the reality is sometimes the ethnicity becomes the problem when the more systemic issue isn't being addressed. Right, so those damn blankety blanks yep. can never cooperate. Yep. But the reality is, you're set up to be at odds because none of the things that are need to be built to to force cohesion, to force integration, are yeah. there, and so ethnicity becomes an easy target. Is it is it then used as an excuse in order not to address the other issues? Uh, I, well, it's often used as an excuse yeah. and as a, uh, a red herring. Yeah. Okay. So, so then you see the, the training modules come pouring in on cross-cultural sensitivity uh-huh. uh, and team-building activities to try and get these people to get along, yes. but none of the other more fundamental issues being addressed. Yeah. Okay, so you, would, you with your, car, your, your organization, Navalent, you would, you would say you are addressing these, these underlying or these core, these, these core issues rather than, than the, the, the intercultural issues. Well, I think, you know, certainly, Chris, I wouldn't want to ignore the fact that if there are intercultural issues or challenges mm-hmm. that need to be learned more about or addressed or helped, I, I certainly wouldn't want to ignore those. But often, if, that, if that's just the symptom versus the core problem, I want to do yeah. both. I want to make sure I, – I, for us, it's leave no stone unturned. If these units – let's stick with our example of, you know, a call center and an order center in Asia and a supply chain management process and a logistics operations in South America. If those have to work together – I would say do everything that it would require to make the seam of those two places work perfectly, yeah. structurally, technologically, culturally, um, uh, etc. Yeah. And and in in your experience, because you have what is it, thirty years under your belt right now. I know I look so young; it's hard to believe. You, right? You look like twenty three. I mean, really, I could I would not give you any any older than that. Yeah. It's uh, it, would you in your thirty year experience would you say that um, certain certain countries or cultures again because I mean this is culture matters work better together than others I mean without stigmatizing and without uh, without in this this ethnicity thing just just because it it's your experience that it works more difficult it takes more time to for things to work and to gel well you know I, I think there are 
some patterns. I, again, for me, context is everything, right? So mm-hmm. the, the competitive context, the technology context. Um, but, you know, so uh, you, so one ex- interesting, one mythology is often that in Asia, because in Asia, cultures are very hierarchical. Yeah. Um, candid feedback is always difficult to give. Uh-huh. Um, information doesn't move uh, as fluidly, hierarchically, or vertically. Um, I think that sometimes is true, but often it's not. I think if you go to Korea, there are Korean uh, organizations that do quite well with feedback. You know what I mean? So I think you have to sort of be aware of certain kinds of patterns uh, where cultural norms of the location Mm -hmm. um, are competing with cultural norms the organization is trying to create. Right. Um, And be aware of how do you help not put those in direct opposition to each other, but at least help them be compatible. Right. Um, but, uh, but a lot of times, again, like in the example, the competitive context, the technological context, the leadership context of the organization itself inserts tensions where there might not be any of that otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good point. And, and uh, having, having said this, do you agree with me? I've, I've, this is a question I've written down, actually, uh, and um, I'll read it out to you. It's a bit, it's a bit rhetorical in a way. So, I've, I've written down, I'm sure you'd agree with, with me, that you can't use a leadership or slash management template from one country and, and apply it to another. Well, first of all, you need to agree whether that is true or not. And if you do, what do you do then? I, I, would, I would have stopped the sentence at, after template. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 don't th- I don't think you can have a leadership or management template, period. Whether it's, whether it's as, a, as a lens on cross-culture uh-huh. or department or function or discipline of any kind. I think we have too many recipes or formulas for leadership mm-hmm. that are dangerous, dangerous, misapplied, um, and devoid of thought. Right. Um, and uh, you know, in our ten-year longitudinal study uh, we did uh, with 2,700 leaders mm-hmm. on what what causes success or failure in leadership as they rise to the top, mm-hmm. context was one of the major causes of failure and the major differentiators of success. Um, that you could read the environment around you, you could study the environment around you, you could build the kinds of connections needed there, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we don't train leaders to be contextually intelligent enough. And so um, culture becomes a very cheap and um, superficial uh, l- label on which you put problems that are that are that are, are behavioral but not systemic. Um, leaders don't understand and appreciate the culture they help create through their own behavior. The cues they send, the example they set, um, the unintended consequences of choices they make um, that others then shape their own behavior uh, to follow. Is that what you mean with contextually intelligent? uh, It's part of it. I think contextual intelligence includes understanding the impact of your behavior on the environment. Mm -hmm. But it also includes – you know, paying attention to what's happening inside and outside the environment you're leading in, mm-hmm. um, being curious and anthropological about w- why are things the way they are, not assuming that the answer you have is the answer they need, and not assuming that you have some mythical mandate t- to change something in a one-way process. Contextual intelligent leaders understand that the environment has as much to shape in me and change in me as I have to shape and change in it, um, and they show up that adaptive. Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you not describing superhuman uh, capabilities or abilities here? 
Nope. Um, we ha- I have 10 years of data and 2,700 people in the study to prove yeah. that contextual uh, – there were four There were four capabilities. Context was one of them. Breadth, seeing a bigger picture and piece, you know, seeing a holistic organization. Choice, being able to make hard decisions and narrow, narrow a focus. And connection, building the kinds of relationships of trust. Um, what, one of the problems we had, of course, when the, after 99 regression analyses in the data, those four were always distinguished at the top. But the problem was the the successful leaders who didn't fail, and so we've known for you know 30, 20 years that leaders in their first 18 months of appointment, 50% of them fail, and uh, those four were always the ones that set apart the ones that didn't fail. But if you did three of the four well, you still failed. And so my very problem, Chris, was I didn't want to have to write that because then you now I'm saying you have to be God. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, no, the, the, you know, my research team, after like I said, after almost a hundred hundred different cuts of the data, said it's not going to change. This is what it says. Yeah. But a closer look revealed, Chris, that they're all learnable. These were not tr- mysterious traits that people were genetically born with. These were all capabilities that can be learned. Um, waiting till your first assignment as a vice president is probably not the time to start learning them. <laughs> um, that if organizations could begin cultivating these orientations in people sooner, that when they arrive in more you know, broader positions of influence, they're prepared. But they can be learned. So can you summarize that for us again, please? Because I, I wrote down uh, – because when I when I start out with an interview, I always have a blank piece of paper with the name and the number of podcast, number 91, and your name is at the top. And then I start scribbling stuff and etc. And at the end, it's a full piece of paper with all my notes and, and ideas and questions so I wrote down what are the, the top three success factors and top three failures. There, but you're but you're actually talking about four issues here, right? There's four. There's breadth, yeah. um, context, choice, and connection. Okay. Choice, I'm writing it down as well, and connection. Okay. Um, so is there – and you're saying if you do three of them, you're going to fail anyway. So you have to do all four. Yeah, and that was the, that was the hardest and most painful part of the data for me. Was you know there were there were seven or eight different factors we were analyzing across a variety of cuts, but those four were consistently the ones that set the leaders who didn't fail yeah. apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you couldn't be good at two, okay at one, and developing in another. Okay. You had to be good at all. You had to be good at all four, which which in part explains some of the failure rates, right? It's why the failure rate's so high. Yeah. The bar is so high. Yeah. But think about it. We're we're entrusting the most important strategic parts of our organizations, the most important competitive capabilities and performance, to these most senior leaders. Of course, the bar is high, right? Why wouldn't it be? Yeah. And so. With, all, with the billions and billions of dollars we're spending trying to develop people and coach people, why are we getting better results? Um, but the reality is we now have data that says – and you know, it was very heartening to us. We, um, we published the data in Harvard Business Review and Harvard named that research as one of the that, – that year's ideas that mattered most. Um, we got hundreds, hundreds of thousands of responses and reads on the data all saying yes, yes, people inherently resonated and recognized that in their own lives and in the leaders they respected most, those four things to be true and could also recognize uh, any one of them missing as an outage that caused some catastrophic failure or, or, or frustration. So it was really heartening to watch people. Uh, and, of course, the most heartening part was getting emails or letters or notes from folks saying, 
how they adopted them uh, and shifted their careers. Okay, so you you wrote a couple of books as well that uh, that have done very well. Um, uh, there have been bestsellers as well, and two books you've written is Rising to Power: The Journey of Exceptional Le- uh, Executive Leadership Divided, and What Emergent Leaders Need and What You Might Be Missing. Which book covers these these four items? The the first one, Rising to Power. Okay, uh, it's the it's the it's the book on which this this re- the, the research is based uh, in that book. Okay, mm. what's the other book about? Leadership Divided was a book uh, uh, a while back. It was before we had this cross-generational uh, horrible term called millennials. But it was at the outset of of beginning to uh, this this generation was appearing on the scenes uh-huh. and appearing and showing up quite differently. And people were struggling with uh, how different they appeared to be. And so this was a research study on what what is this chasm about and why do we keep blaming the year people were born yeah. as 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 a problem. And so it was a, a pretty wide study on uh, so we call we simply call them emerging and incumbent leaders, leaders rising up and leaders already in place. We didn't and we and we what we discovered in the research was that it, birth year was had little to do with the difference. Um, there were other six other factors that determined why c- cross-generational leaders could or couldn't connect well. But the issue wasn't which one are you, incumbent or emergent. The issue was which are you when because there were times incumbent leaders were actually the emerging leaders yeah. t- technologically, for example, and vice versa. So the issue was one of relationship, not demographic. Um, and you know, trying to label people by their birth year, boomers, Xers, yeah. Whatever was foolish, and and only further served to divide them, not bring them together. Okay, all right. So <clears throat> your first the, the 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 first book I mentioned, Rising to Power, that is the the book that covers these 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 say four cornerstones. How would you call these? They're just four dimensions of success. Okay, four dimensions of success. Are can you are there any like dimensions of failure as well? Like do this and you're out. Well, so each one of them has a dark side, right? So. You know, um, we saw as we we so we isolated uh, the folks in our study. We isolated a hundred leaders in mid ascent, almost so we could like in slow motion watch them yeah. to see why were these leaders suddenly you know, in, when they're in the middle, they're a senior director labeled as high potential and the next coming and all these extraordinary things. How could they suddenly, within eighteen months or sooner, become disasters? That just made no sense. What what could possibly be accounting for exactly. their such complete inability to adapt to a higher altitude? And so in the isolation process, we studied all of the landmines mm-hmm. that organizations put in their way. It's not like these are, people are, are setting out to fail, but, but each of those four dimensions has a dark side. So for example, when we're selecting leaders for broader assignments, whether they're coming in from outside the organization or from inside – we look at their resumes, you know, which we've known forever are the most um, unpredictable devices to or, or invalid assessments. In invalid, yeah. right? But we use them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we, we have nothing better, really. Oh, uh, you know, not true, Chris. We have plenty of better. We have so many more better, reliable selection devices than a, than a resume. Okay, We're just fin- too lazy. finish the finish the first story, this, and then give us some ideas on in terms so, of how to how to do that better. We're looking at the resume, uh-huh. and we we say things like, "Wow, you've turned around two or three supply chains. That's what we need." Or, "My gosh, look at these amazing brands you've built. Mm-hmm. That's what we need." Or look at these financial systems you've built as a as a financier. That's what we need our CFO to do. Yeah. Well, 
in those conversations, we are setting that person up to fail. Why? What we're saying to them is you have a formula. You have a recipe. You have an approach. We want you to bring that approach here. So the person shows up and starts slapping on their approach because you told them that was what you needed. And of course, not surprisingly, the organization resists. It doesn't fit. They don't contextually try and adapt it. They just come in with this mythical mandate to apply what they've learned yeah. or what so they've done. Applying one template from one organization or one institution or, or moment into another, and they hope it fits. And of course it won't, right? right? So, but they were told to do it. So that's mm-hmm. a failure of context, right? Yeah. Um, uh, they arrive, and so they get very frustrated, so they start look, managing up the people who hired them. The boss is saying, you didn't tell me it was this bad, and they stop protecting people above them from mm-hmm. seeing what's really happening. Meanwhile, their diagnosis has become an indictment of mm-hmm. what's there. So they're now alienating their direct reports and their peers, right? Yeah. Who are the two two single most predictive populations of your success when you come in and see what it is? Your peers and direct reports. So now you have a failure of connection. Yeah. Okay. So you can see, and we've all seen how the story plays out. It's pretty ugly, and you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, people back away, and this right. is slow death. Okay. So each of the each of those dimensions has reasons that you know their absence or their misapplication or their failure causes the leader to flame out. Okay, got that. So that's a bad approach. Um, and we you you mentioned, and I wrote this down: better CVs, better resumes. So what else? What else can I do? Like ten push-ups or something? I mean, what is? Well, how you know, you I don't assess think- me whether I would be a good fit for whatever job that you need me to do. So. So we we I mean I, and we're seeing more and more organizations now use behavioral event interviews, right? So I'm selecting for a set of competencies and a set of success factors. Use behavioral event interviews. Make people tell you their stories in which they've demonstrated um, success in a certain degree of competence or a certain de- degree of requirements of the role. Um, and and we know that psychologically and professionally. Uh, a, a well-designed behavioral event selection process is much more predictive of whether or not someone will succeed in a role. Make people do work. Make people show you, you know, through some type of assessment process, present to you, demonstrate work products, make people demonstrate competence uh, to you uh, or a track record of effort uh, and tell you how would you, and ask them, how would you adapt this here? Uh, ask them to tell you how they would spend their first three or four months. Isn't that, you, you, isn't that still like, um, how do you say, I mean, people like uh, social desirable answers? Isn't, isn't that what you're soliciting then? No, you can. Um, be, well, yeah, well, so people who people who are very familiar with behavioral interviews will come with their stories prepared. But there, if you if you distribute the selection process across a number of people, you can people you can tell if somebody's gaming the process. It's very difficult to lie uh, in a story yeah. when you don't know the stories you're going to be asked. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so if across a set of, of select selectors, you heard the same story nine times, that's a red flag, right? So, but it's very difficult for someone who's actually demonstrated the kinds of competencies you want, mm-hmm. and can tell you how they would adapt them, uh, including asking you asking for a story of when you've had to adapt. Tell me a time when you had to modify who you are and how you approach things to fit a context. You can you can test for it. So rather than saying well, let's go through a tour of your resume and tell me about the jobs you've done, yeah. which tell me nothing. Um, prepare a set of selection devices and 
they won't know what competencies you're selecting for. They won't know what the profile of the role is. They're just going to tell you through their own demonstration of their own success. Um, and you're, you'll be looking for, are they demonstrating the competencies of strategic thinking or um, you know, cross-border collaboration or um, uh, setting, setting hard priorities or dealing with difficult employees or having to fire somebody? Or their own, you know, how they how they learn from their own failure. They won't know what you're looking for, mm -hmm. and nor should and nor should they. Um, and that's what makes the um, the process more reliable. Is they're just having to demonstrate success in, in, in a, through a set of experiences and stories. You have to be the do the the selectors have to do the analysis, um, assessment centers, watching people in in performance yeah. you know whether it's through a presentation or through a work product or through some demonstration of capability in your environment with your people mm -hmm. so you can see can they blend in this environment there the, yeah those kinds of devices take more work and effort they take more preparation time and today you see people parading especially in high growth companies people getting through you know 20 minute interviews while the person's on their phone like this going yeah yeah so tell me about yourself you know and they're like this <laughs> So the, 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 yeah, well, the person then being they, they, interviewed they, is actually not being paid attention to. Oh, no. And and so at the end, the person goes, yeah, yeah, well, you seem nice. Oh, good luck. Bye. Yeah. I, I've watched high-growth, high-tech companies select like that. Mm. Um, and then the HR, the HR person runs around, collects the data, moves the person along or not. It's the most offensive way to select, but it's how people do it because they don't have time. They somehow mysteriously have the money. Yeah. The hundreds of millions of dollars to redo these searches, but somehow they don't have time to do it right on the first search. Is this is uh, this process you, you describe? Is this a, a process you describe in one of your books? No, no, no you, but you just you describe the other side, right? You just you would actually yeah. describe how I, I would become the excellent leader. But I have um, we we when we build selection processes for executives for companies, that, that's the process we use. There are plenty of there's plenty of information out there mm. documenting great selection devices like those. Yeah. Uh, people can go find. Um, you just have to have the discipline to use them, and you have to force hiring managers and for HR has to be the ones that force the process to be used in a disciplined, yeah. responsible way. Fair but they're not doing. It. They're not no. doing it. And what you're looking for are people that are that can, are able to connect, uh, that have a breath, that has that can understand context and uh, understand choice or can make choices as well. Those yep. are your four. Well, I call them cornerstones I, because I put them in four corners on my on my blank piece of paper. Um, are, is is this book published already? Rising to power. It is out. Yep, it is out. It was uh, it hit number one on Amazon's bestseller list yeah. uh, in its in its categories, and it's available. And it's uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can come to our, our website, and uh, you can there's a there's an executive summary on our website. You can download to read uh, first if you want. There's also the the researches on our website. You can read how we got the data. So okay, great. And it's in uh, in ebook, I reckon, and in uh, hard copy as well. Yep. Yes. Uh, what's your next book going to be about? <laughs> That's such a funny question, Chris. Oh. Uh, I don't, this one almost killed me. Okay. I don't know, uh, but um, so interestingly enough, I don't, I don't, I don't. The answer is I don't know. But right. so we, we now have our ten years of data has now become fifteen years of data. Right. We now have thirty three hundred folks in the in the database, and when we isolated the data, so we'll go back to our systems conversation. We isolated leadership behaviors because yes. that seemed to be, but all of the other aspects of the system, strategy, direction, identity, culture, people, processes, governance. Um, we didn't analyze those as an integrated set of dimensions and their correlations to each other. 
So you know, the unit of analysis was the individual. But uh, I, I'm much more um, fascinated by systems. Uh-huh. And so we have begun the process of asking our research team to go back and say, okay, we've now talked about what the individual unit of analysis told us uh-huh. in this search. What can we go back and learn with five more years of data uh, about the other parts uh-huh. of the system uh, and how they interrelate with each other and what that can tell us about organizations and how they those that thrive versus those that don't. So we are beginning uh, the process of going to see Look under the hood and see what's there. I don't know if it'll result in a book no, or not. Of course it will, yeah. But, but I, I'm I'm much more naturally intrigued by that. So I, it's been I, I have to scratch. The, I at least have to know what's there. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's very good and very interesting. And good luck with that as well, because you never know what you're going to find. And that's uh, that's interesting as well. well it's, it's also the power of our uh, of AI, right? So we had we had great artificial intelligence. We had IBM Watson right. to use, and it's pretty creepy technology in what that stuff can do. Uh-huh. And now the AI tools that have come even since that first are even more sophisticated. So I'm very eager to see I can imagine. what that will tell us. Yeah, yeah. eager and, and scary, possibly at the same at the same time. Yes, well, I'm, yes, I am very scared. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Ron, we're coming to the end of the interview. We're about uh, thirty plus minutes in the uh, into the interview. So um, coming to my last final two questions, can you th- give us three tips to become more culturally competent? Yeah. Well, first, so first of all. Become curious, read context. Um, Say that again. Yeah, Repeat that again. Become? Become curious uh-huh. and read. become anthropological. Read the context around you. Okay. Start with questions. Start with um, how, how do these things come to be? Start with uh, asking yourself then how do I adapt to this context? Okay. Uh, and then ask for feedback. Ask others to tell you how they experience you in that context. Ask for for folks to tell you how can you be better where can you improve don't just assume that your own versions of adaptation are effective right okay so that's number one what's number two those were three. Oh, sorry uh, <laughs> you were fast Lightning read fast. the con read the context yeah adapt yourself ask for feedback okay Okay, there's, those will be in the show notes as well. Um, all these three, the three tips. Now, how can people get in touch with you or your organization? Come and visit us at www.navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. If you come to navalent.com slash transformation, we have a free ebook for you on leading transformation in organizations. It's our sort of how we, our approach for systemic transformation. Uh, if you go to the website and find Rising to Power, there's a learn more button there where you can find the executive summary. You can find the research. You can find more about us. We have lots of videos. We've got a quarterly magazine. We'd love to send you on organizations and leadership issues. Uh, there's a, there's even an issue, you can, a back issue you can go get on culture. Right. So Excellent. come uh, Twitter at, at Ron Carucci. I'm on LinkedIn. So let's keep the conversation going. All right. We'll do that. All these things will be uh, out there on the show notes, Culture Matters. Dot com for an episode 91. This was Ron Carucci. Thank you, Ron, for being on the show, and I'm pretty sure we'll bump to in bump into each other in the future. Chris, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, cheers. Thanks, Ron, for being on the show. I'm pretty sure, like I said, we'll bump into each other in the future. If you want to see what uh, what we both look like, you can go to culturematters.com slash YouTube because we're also video broadcasting this podcast, not only in iTunes and Stitcher, but also on YouTube. Again, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Leave a review on iTunes. Uh, That would be really nice. Um, Do remember that culture does matter. 
And finally, the final words. This episode was produced by Janice Sheila and music was by Ben Sound. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast and I'll be back in two weeks' time. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.